this is Rauki on the Sustainable Founders Podcast. Today I have Ed Curry and Andy Coxon, founders of ACT London, a natural deodorant balm brand. Hi guys, tell me about your brand, your products, and why you believe you are a sustainable company. Well, let's talk about first how we met. So me and Andy, we were West End performers in London. We met on a show called Beautiful, the Carol King Musical back in 2015, which was on at the Old Twitch Theatre. And there, you know, we were doing eight shows a week, performing under hot lights, wearing the same costumes night after night. And, you know, personally, I'm a very smelly person. We have very active lifestyles and deodorants just weren't cutting it. So I guess rather naively, we set out on a mission to, to say, let's change this. Like nothing else on the market's working. If they can put a man on the moon, we can figure out how to make a deodorant. So back in 2016, we uh, we started cooking things up in the kitchen, in our tiny, tiny Camden kitchen. Kind of looked like a bit of Breaking Bad style meth lab vibes. Lots of powder smoking around. Um, and, you know, we created our first ever formulation based on something we found online on a sort of hippie mum's website. Gave us a huge rash. But... <laughs> We didn't smell as much as usual. And we were like, hmm, okay, there's something in this. So over the course of three years, trial and error, every week creating a different formulation, testing it on each other, we created something what we think is really special and what our customers think is really special too. A fantastic deodorant balm, much like a moisturizer that you apply with your fingertips, lasts all day and keeps you feeling dry all day too. And the most important bit you missed out is that it's gender-free and plastic-free. A big point that we stuck to from day one, because we could have launched two years earlier if we weren't plastic-free, because it is hard being plastic-free. So we stuck to our guns and made sure we made everything plastic-free from the package you get it delivered into what the actual deodorant lives in itself, including the cap, which no one else is doing. So you can just pop it in your home recycling, just like a Coke can when it's empty. I mean, your journey is already incredible. Three years of formula creation. I mean, that's a lot of testing. How did you <laughs> come across these ingredients and these recipes? Did you, was it just all online or did you do research or did you have to go into some sort of dermatology course? I mean, or was it just we're going to try it on ourselves and find something amazing? Yeah, it was that. I wish I could say that we, we had professional help during that first three years, but we didn't. It was very much just researching on the internet about different ingredients and how they're sourced. And I was kind of convinced I wanted to make a natural deodorant because I didn't, I'm not a chemist. I don't understand all these different ingredients that are on deodorant, that are in deodorants. And so, yeah, I just bought them in and tried them out. I mean, it was all sort of butters, like plant butters, plant oils, waxes, powders, mineral powders. There was nothing too scary, but obviously, you know, the proportion of those you need to, to get right in order to make it safe. In particular, essential oils, which we used as part of the fragrance there, they can be incredibly dangerous to work with. I know that now. And that was really what was causing these rashes at the beginning because I was using too high a concentration and not diluting them enough because they are incredibly potent chemicals. It's worth, worth saying that we, we didn't actually set out to make a company. So there was no kind of, here's one formulation, let's pop it in testing for three months and stability testing. We had no idea about all of that stuff. This was purely, ooh, I've just made a new formulation, pop it in the fridge so it goes hard. When it's hard, go and try it. Let me know how you get on. Ooh, I've got a blister on that one, but I don't smell. Cool. 
what can we tweak? Here's a new one three weeks later. It was purely that. And it was as giving it to friends and cast members across the West End. Hey, we're giving us feedback, blah, blah, blah. They're buying little tins because they actually liked it. Then when we did nail that final formulation, we gave a sample to everyone in the West End. So we did a, we did a little drop because we were doing a Kickstarter campaign to be able to actually make a company. And we gave everyone a sample and they went absolutely nuts for it. And we smashed our target within like an hour. And uh, yeah, it just went mental. And since that day, it hasn't really calmed down. What was that tipping point where you've went from, we're just making this in our kitchen for ourselves to maybe this is a business? Like, Because I had this with my business as well. When I started it, I was like, oh, I'm just looking into it and I'm just researching. And I remember going to London College of Fashion, doing some courses. And in my head, I think part of myself was like, I know I'm just curious. I'm not, I'm not going to launch a brand or a business. And then I started visiting factories. And then even then I was still saying, well, I'm just curious. I mean, I'm just exploring what could potentially be. And, it, and then there was a point where I had to place an order with the factory. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, if I do this, like, this is going to be real. And this is going to be a real brand that people can buy. And I'm going to be the founder of it. And I, it was a very specific moment that I remember with such clarity. Where was that for you? I think, like you say, the curiosity, it was just so much fun to be able to, to create the product. And then also just thinking, okay, how would we market this? Like, how do we design the logo and getting on Canva and creating a very basic logo back in the day? And it was like curiosity. You started reading more, started reading like Seth Godin books about marketing, started reading about startups. And I was like, this, this is really exciting me. And this was coming at a time for me when I wasn't too excited about being a performer anymore. I'd done it for a whole six years after graduating from college. And I decided really it wasn't for me. I didn't, I wasn't enjoying it as much as I, I was when I was younger. I think that's very different for Andy, who still performs every now and then. And I mean, you can probably talk more about that. Yeah, I think just going back to the point of when we realized this was a business, there was two big points in the journey so far. One was this all began as a side hustle. It was always to be like, what can we do to make money between acting jobs initially? And we were selling 100 pots here and there, or, sorry, 10 pots for 10 pounds, make 100 pounds, great. I could pay rent this month or whatever. And it sort of escalated quite quickly. That was the turning point when we went, okay, we've, we've actually got something really good here. Then I think once we went through all the bits of branding and we had a couple of changes here and there, when COVID hit, we were, well, I was on day one of rehearsals for West Side Story. I was playing Tony. Ed was working as a PA at the time, but we'd completely lost our jobs because we were freelancers. And if we didn't have that money from the Kickstarter, well, no, because we had that money from the Kickstarter, we were able to say, right, let's sit down, do this nine to five. We're still going to launch it when we said we're going to launch it, but we can pay our rent and make sure we're, we're good because the theatre's disappeared. So we were so lucky to be able to do that. And we were able to put way more effort into this than we probably could have without that downtime. So I genuinely think when we were pressing go on orders and manufacturing from afar and Ed had moved to Berlin at the time and we still work remotely. He's still in Berlin. I'm still in London. We were just navigating through. And as Ed said, from that first, the first inkling is of this is quite fun. It's always been every day, though hard, every day is a life, every day is a lesson. We're learning new things every week and coming up against new challenges. And the journey is fun. 
And I don't think that will ever stop as long as, well, when it does, we'll know about it. But I think that's what made, that's what's making us keep going because it's fun and we have a business that is working. But yes, I still perform here and there. <laughs> Long-winded answer. <laughs> That's a journey we like. We like the long scenic route. Now, you talked about your products being gender-free and plastic-free. Let's kind of separate those two out. Why did you care about that? The reason we went gender-free, when you go to the supermarket now or any, what do you call them, chemists, whatever, your deodorant section is split out into two, male and female. The males is all silver, black, fire, wall. The women's is all pastels and pinks and soft colours and smells like fresh linen. Why is that? Why are we accepting that? Because they all smell vile. No one likes the smell of a deodorant spray. I've never, ever liked my deodorant from the age of when you first start wearing it at like 12 or 13. We were adamant we wanted to make a fragrance-led deodorant that was beautifully crafted and led by these gorgeous scents that you could wear as perfumes. Nobody wants to smell like a teenage boy. Uh, and I think that was the sort of consensus talking to our friends as well. Like men in their 30s still wearing Lynx Africa. Like, come on. <laughs> I know. It's infuriating. I go to the gym now and if somebody sprays, <laughs> somebody sprays in a, just by their locker, I'm literally like, what? What is that noise? I've not heard that, smelt that for so long. It kind of baffles me that people still think that this propelled air onto your armpit is good for you. And it's also this idea of why do we have men's deodorants and women's deodorants? Like, surely underarm and body odor is generally the same because you're all bodies and you all work in the same way. So this division of um, of deodorants in that way has always been a bit of a weird one, and and we can extend that to so many other categories as well. And I feel like the environment now is more open to questioning this. Like, actually, do we really need all these multi gender things? Everything divided by genders, whether it's bathrooms or whether it's even clothes. You know, I think people are really stopping to question that. 100%. I think it's just nice as well to be able to choose something that you like. So it's interesting, our grey deodorant, which I suppose would be traditionally the more masculine uh, looking one, that's the highest seller amongst females. And I think it's because we're giving people the choice again to just choose what they like and we're not saying that's for men or you know you're more masculine if you're wearing this i think that's important the freedom of choice just to be able to like what you like fragrance is so subjective we've tried to kind of cater fragrances into sort of brackets of you know a a more floral scent a more woody scent a more aromatherapy-esque scent and like ed said the more woody one is going more towards the women which you'd think would be more masculine the, the more floral one is more strong and I've got male friends that are obsessed with it. I don't personally wear that one, but anyone can go for any of them. And it reminded me of back in the day when people were using sprays around me, men used to use women's deodorants because they found it more effective as well. And that scent, and why, why are we being served male and female scents still? Like, surely it's just down to if you like it, wear it. And I think it's so important to question these things and then reimagine them and just recognize what's still needed going forward and what isn't and that gender label clearly isn't so leave it in the past and move forward and i think that is really important part of your brand it's quite interesting some of the comments we get still like we say gender free on our packaging and particularly on facebook (laughs) some of the comments we got just because we say gender free we're just saying it's open to anybody and people have a real issue with it 
we're like, well, it's not for you then, babe. Like, you, you don't have to buy it. We're not trying to focus you to buy it. Like, you don't need to comment. Like, what are they unhappy about? Basically, there's two. There's only two genders or two sexes. Why do you have to say all genders or gender free? It's male or female. It's unisex. And you're like, great. All of that is included in saying gender free. Whatever you think that to be, gender free. But the people that do class themselves as something different, they're also included. Why are you bothered by that? Sit down and shut up. <laughs> Very passionate. Yes. I know the response to the Facebook comments. That, <laughs> yeah, it's such a strange thing that pe- what people get upset about. And, you know, it's actually, they're not even being excluded from this, you know, gender-free title. So the fact that they get so unhappy about it is quite telling about maybe society and where some people still are. It's a... Uh... And now let's talk about plastic free. What is this all about? Why did you care about plastic free? Andy, you said earlier, if you had gone for plastic option, you would have launched a lot sooner. Talk to me about why you care and what that journey has been for you. Being plastic free wasn't necessarily the the driver. It was being recyclable. And many plastics involved in deodorants are not recyclable. So we were looking at initially our our balm was in a sliding lid tin that you couldn't seal. So we were looking at, let's stick like a yogurt pot lid on top of the actual tray. The lid slides over, but then that's like glued with plastic, which is not, you know, that just gets included into the atmosphere. I just hate all of that kind of stuff. I always had, and I'm, I'm quite the, per- I'm the person that will go through the bin and split it out and shout at someone if they've not put it in the right bin. That to me. So it's my own personal ethical standards that made this what it is. Aluminium tubes are not a new thing. They've existed for years. Obviously, anything that comes in an aluminium tube now has a plastic cap. That's all everyone knows about. But I hate that. That cap is not recyclable at all. So infuriating for a start. So we set out to find something because, Ed, you, you tell this story pretty well about going to the British Library to look at the patent for the old Victorian paint tubes and caps because they existed. But now they're just not in use. We've all just accepted. Let's use this lump of plastic on the end of it that will forever be in landfill. I think there's something to be said for plastic. Obviously, it's a fantastic material in terms of what it can do. It's flexible. So for creating a a nice tight seal on a tube, brilliant. But from the beginning, we we didn't give ourselves an easy challenge. We said we want to be 100% plastic free. And that was purely driven from our own ethical standpoint. We just didn't I think selfishly didn't want to be creating something that was going to be in the environment still in a thousand years time. And the journey to being plastic free is not an easy one because most things on the market are plastic and for good reason. It's a great material to use. And that's why, you know, aluminium caps were phased out many, many, many years ago. They used to be on paints, I believe, back in like the 1920s, et cetera. And we thought, well, let's bring it back. And so we spent about six months trying to find a manufacturer that would make a cap for our tubes, which is just insane in itself. Uh, and then we had, well, I'll be honest, we had real issues with that because <laughs> plastic was brought in for a reason. <laughs> aluminium caps were not the best thing because aluminium on aluminium doesn't create a tight seal. So we had a huge leaking problem from our, from our deodorants. And we, you know, we faced these challenges along the way. We've now fixed that leaking problem. And one time it leaked out the other end because aluminium tubes, they're not as commonly used because plastic tubes came in because again, they're much more efficient. They're squeezy, they're more malleable, they don't break as easily. Aluminium, you know, if you roll it too much, it'll crack at the sides. It doesn't bounce back. So it's got all these issues with it. 
looks fantastic though in aluminium. And I'm very happy to say that we created a product that is 100% plastic free and it is functional. There is a small compromise that, you know, there's not a piercer. Most people are used to having a piercer on the cap, you know, turn it around, stab, stab the end of your tube, pop it back on. We don't have that. You do have to use a pen to stab your tube, but you do that once every three months because that's how long the product lasts. So there are compromises, like plastic is a fantastic material. Aluminium is great, not as good as plastic in many use cases, but from a personal ethical standpoint, we were just like, we're not doing it. Not doing it. And you can recycle aluminium over and over again and it doesn't lose quality and 80% of aluminium in circulation is recycled. So let's keep that going. Incredible. And you you sort of mentioned that um, your reasons for not wanting that plastic cap were selfish, but I don't think they're selfish at all. I think it's really reasonable to want to leave the planet in a better state and not want rubbish left for the next thousand years because something that you've created and you've profited from. So, you know, definitely give yourself a break on that one. I think it's the right thing to do. Now, let's talk about aerosols. You have said that aerosols now contribute more to pollution than cars. I mean, is this true? Is this like, when I, when I read that, I'm just, that's mind blowing. Explain to me. Oh, exactly right. There's a, there's a study that's found that aerosols are the leading, the leading cause of air pollution in the UK above vehicles. And that's hairsprays, that's deodorants, that's all sorts of things. And it's because of the, the propellants. If you think about it, you know, if you're spraying something into the atmosphere, those are particles. They're not air particles in, in the normal atmosphere. They are other things. They are chemicals. They are small bits of whatnot, fragrance even. And so they last. They don't just disappear straight away. It's much like if you put something into a river, it's still there. It still goes into the, the ecosystem. And so when we found that study as well, we were like, oh my gosh, like, we didn't set out to make the business, uh, you know, didn't set out to make the product a balm format. And because of that, it was just because it's way more effective than aerosol. But it's so interesting that that's what's causing most air pollution. Maybe we don't need you, Les, after all. <laughs> we just need them yeah, to yeah. ban aerosols. It's funny you say that. Like, why is there not more regulation on aerosols? If it is the leading cause above vehicles, why is there not regulation on that? You know, we've got so many great alternatives. Act, obviously, for deodorant. Hairspray might be a difficult one. But, you know, there's so, so much out there. We should be forcing companies to make the change. Definitely, definitely. Certainly a lot of food for thought there. Now, in terms of certification, you guys are B Corp certified. We're, we're doing the process. In the process. Ah, okay. So... Talk to me about why you chose that certification and what that journey looks like for you. Is it proving to be quite tough? Is it unexpected? Some of the challenges you're facing there? So I started leading on that. A lot of our workforce are actors, by the way. We kind of hire them as freelancers and, and I've hired a friend of mine who is so intelligent and she's sort of leading on it for us and loves it. But I started all of the, the initial outreach as to what the hell is B Corp? What do we have to do? And there's a good, you know, it can take up to like two years to complete it because there's so many moving parts of your business you have to be super transparent about and know. You have to know every element. You have to know, you know, if, if your team are working from home, what are they throwing away? How, how much electricity are they using? What's their personal carbon footprint? And I'm super interested by that stuff. I know it's an absolute ball ache for a lot of people and 
and maybe they don't care at all, but I think, you know, it's so useful to know that if we're creating a sustainable product, let's live sustainably as well and have a certification to prove that we are. And, you know, you have to keep on top of that every year. You don't just get the certification and that's it. You have to, you then get checked and you have to prove that you're still in that standing. And those that are listening that understand what it takes to be B Cup, there are a lot of things. I think it's forcing us to be more sophisticated as a business as well. Like if we think about Lion and Andy's background, we have no business experience. We were actors and we have, we create something pretty special and we're, we're still learning and growing and understanding corporate structure and, you know, governance and HR policies, et cetera. So B Corp is, is good for us because it's forcing us to implement this stuff that perhaps we don't have experience of previously, which is great, but really hard and is quite distracting as well. Like it takes you away from the day to day growing of the business, but we think it's important because we want to make sure that. Like we said earlier, actors leaving the world in a better place than when we uh, first started. Well, fingers crossed and good luck with your journey on that B Corp certification. I appreciate it is tough and it is rigorous, but I think ultimately that means that when you do secure it, it will be so incredibly rewarding. But also for your shoppers, for people who are buying products, it reassures them. uh, It reinforces the trust that you can have with them as well to show that you are a business and a force for good. Absolutely. It, it allows us to hold our suppliers accountable. So we can say, oh, where is that from actually? Have you sustainably sourced it or suitably sourced it? Um, and alongside supply chain, like Ed said, policies for our workforce are so important to us. So to, to be able to nail them down is uh, really, really exciting and important to us. Let's talk about cost and price and affordability because sometimes people do reach out and they say, oh, why does everything that's sustainable cost so much more? And why can't it be more affordable? What do you say to those people? I've got a great answer for that. Instead of sort of coming after the small businesses who are trying to make a force the good, go after the big businesses, go after Unilever, go after Procter & Gamble, go after L'Oreal, tell them about it because they should be setting the standard for the rest of the industry. It shouldn't be coming from all the smaller people like us to make this change. That's the way it is, sadly. And it's quite funny, a lot of the the customer, if we ever have customer feedback or complaints on the email, often my first thought is, would you ever have contacted L'Oreal if you'd you know, bought something like Garnier or something? Would you have ever contacted them about what you're asking us? It's like the the pressure is 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 really high on smaller businesses. Like we have to be absolutely perfect across everything. And the reality is, we ain't, <laughs> because we're new and we're still learning and figuring it out as we're going along. We can't be sustainable in every single aspect. We, you know, we've chosen plastic free as the thing to to champion, and so you know, give us a bit of a break sometimes. And but go after the the big guns because they they have the money to be able to make the change. They have the money to be able to create brand new packaging and implement it. Unfortunately, it comes down to, you know, the bottom line and profitability. They always need to be growing. And that's sadly the, you know, capitalism. Every company has to grow every year. So it's not, the change isn't coming fast enough from those big guys. And the pressure, I don't think, is being put on them enough because I think customers think, oh, well, they're a big corporation. My, my little query or complaint will never get through. But if, if you all do it, we can make a change. 
I was going to say that. Is it because you're the founders and you're the face of the business and the brand? So you're more accessible. So people feel like they can come and approach you with challenges or criticism. Whereas when you have big corporate entities, they almost don't know where to go. Like, who do I put this complaint to? And, oh, it's just going to be in a kind of anonymous pile and it will just get ignored. And so it almost makes people feel like they're not going to be heard or seen. So it's really easy for them to not bother. Whereas because you guys are so hands-on and direct and you're accessible for them, it makes you kind of a bit of an easier target to to direct their frustrations on or towards. Yeah, I think so. But I, I obviously I don't want to stop that. I still want to get feedback from our customers because it has actually pushed us on. You know, we, we started this B Corp process because of a lot of stuff that uh, customers were saying. And so, yeah, you know, do just be a lighter touch would be nice. Like, let us know, but don't, don't make us cry. <laughs> yeah. The sooner, the sooner the bigger guys move towards the things that we're doing, let's say, let's say L'Oreal said, right, all of these products that we're doing are now going to be in aluminium tubes with aluminium caps. That opens up an entire manufacturing process for other companies to purchase because they don't make it themselves. They get it in from somewhere, I think. That just opens and makes it more mainstream and easy. We actually met a a large, well-known cosmetics brand the other day, the, the people quite high up there, who want to change their samples. So obviously they're in little terrible plastic sachet sample things. We have mini tubes that are five mil. We can't call them samples because it's more than a day's worth. So they're, again, tiny aluminium tubes that you snap off the end and you poke it back in. Completely aluminium again, completely plastic free. Really hard, really expensive, but we do it and they're a great acquisition tool. However, it costs us. We lose money every time we sell one. These guys that we were speaking to, they want to shift to these tubes, but they can't justify it at the moment because their sachets cost them pennies. So to them, that's a massive massive chunk off their margin because they're moving towards something that is more sustainable. So I get it that the big companies can't just suddenly go, let's swap everything out to this, but they've got to start switching it. Otherwise, we're the ones moving it, taking the hit. And then they're the ones that come knocking on our door saying, hi, we'd like to buy your company because people want it. But we're we're, we're the ones that have done the work. But looping back to your original question, it, it is driven by the consumer like it is more expensive because it's more expensive for the company to make more sustainable products. Like aluminium is more expensive than plastic. And sadly, you know, these little sachets, it's costing the, the company pennies to make. That, that means they can charge nothing. Like ESOP just gives away, you know, 10 whenever you step into their store because it's nothing for them to, to make. Whereas for us, it's a lot. And we have, you know, we lose money every time we, we sell one. But it's driven by the consumer. If the consumer is happy to take those plastic sachets, why would a bigger corporation make any change? So money talks. Also, there is a reason bad products are cheap. No, 80% of people have said they're not happy with their deodorant in a survey. There's a reason your deodorant is a pound from your local supermarket. There's a reason you have to spray it four times a day and keep applying. There's a reason it's so cheap. It's not good for you. It's made of rubbish. Well, also your cost of ingredients will be so much higher because you are using natural ingredients. You're using essential oils and all of these. So, you know, outside of the packaging, which needs economies of scale to bring the cost down, you then have ingredients that cost more because they're natural ingredients 
So all of these things clearly stack up. 100%. If you think about an aerosol deodorant, 99% of it is a propellant. It's not an active ingredient. It's propellants, it's alcohol, and it's fragrance. That's what's in a deodorant aerosol. Whereas ours is, you know, shea butter, coconut oil, essential oils, diatomaceous earth. It, you know, there's no water in there e- either, which is, you know, the cheapest ingredient. It's all oils, which are expensive. And so that is why, sadly, our deodorant is £21 if you purchase it one off. 15% off top, obviously, if you purchase it on a subscription. Um, but it's a, it's a premium product. Talking about subscriptions and awards and happy armpits, should I say? I mean, you're doing pretty impressively in that area. Talk to me about some of these awards you've won, your subscribers, and what that feedback has been from them. Awards are a funny thing because a lot of them are people pay for them and apply for them. The majority of ours, most of them, we haven't applied for. They come in out of nowhere. When we first launched, we I don't even know how to this day know how we got some of the coverage we got. So we were number one in Vogue out of nowhere. We had a PR company, but you know, they hadn't paid anyone to say that. And off the back of that, we won Harper's Bazaar's best deodorant award that we hadn't applied for. And it was just, it just snowballed and it was getting into people's hands because we were doing something so new with a, a noisy community. Our theatre community have been sensational from day one, beaming about it. So it's getting seen by many people. Um, but we have just won our 11th award. I don't know when this episode is airing, but we're not allowed to say what it is right now. Can you say when it's airing? I haven't confirmed that yet, but it will be within the next two months. Okay. Well, at the end of this month, we can share the next one, which is a large one. It's an innovation award. So we're very, very excited. And it makes it all worth it when you see them. We can say it, right? If it's not coming out, like we're allowed to announce it at the end of this month. So if it, if this podcast goes out in November, we can say it. Okay. Well, this month we won four awards. Four awards. We won Tatler's Best Deodorant, Women in Homes Best Deodorant, another one I've forgotten, Blue Beauty Innovation Award, and GQ Grooming Award. We've just won the GQ's Grooming Award for Innovative Product, which is huge for us. because they We are always in GQ, but to win an award from them, still mind-blowing every day to us when we see things like that. Yeah. It's great for us and our egos. Obviously, we never won any awards as actors, so it's nice to finally win awards. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> but, but also, it gives it gives sort of trust to our customers. Like we are, we are a small company. You know, we're not the biggest player in actual deodorant by any means, but we can say quite safely that we're the most awarded deodorant in the UK. Happy days, and uh, our customers love it just as much. And that's an incredible thing to have achieved, especially because you're not buying these awards, you're not paying for these awards. And there will be many deodorant brands out there with significantly sized budgets trying to do those things and that you're winning them because of the integrity of your product. I mean, it's incredible. At the end of the day, it works. (laughs) It speaks for itself. It's been tested on dancers, not animals. So, you know, we've put it through its paces. We've made sure that it's a really effective product. Um, I read somewhere that people come up to you and um, ask you to smell their armpits. (laughs) You're not wrong all the time. I was at uh, the Mighty Hoopla Festival a few months ago and I had four people come up to me, recognize me and just be like, smell my armpit, I'm wearing your product. I have no idea who these people are. And I'm like, I think I'm good. Like, I trust it works. (laughs) 
I don't want to smell your armpit, but thank you. I was stopped in the street yesterday by somebody who just crossed the street to say, are you, sorry, are you Andy from ACT? I was like, yes. I'm obsessed with it. He said, I've been searching forever and the search is actually over. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm like, whoa, that is next level for us. Obviously, we feature a lot on our adverts. Our founder story is very front-facing for the brand. So it's amazing to speak to people like that and to hear that stuff makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, I don't mind people sticking their armpit in my face if it's a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take anything. (laughs) Well, listen, it's been incredible having you guys here. Um, Now, obviously, you were... You were stroke our Western performers. And I'm not sure if I can let you go without a little sing song. Well, do you know what's funny? Like, I obviously don't perform anymore. But Andy, Andy's about to play a a leading role in the new Diana musical. He's playing playing Prince Charles in the Diana musical at the Hammersmith Apollo. I'm not going to force Andy to sing. If you want to, <laughs> or we can do a bit of uh, you've lost that loving feeling. It won't work on Zoom because we'll be out of time with each other. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, I'll start and you can do a little bit. So, me and Andy met in a show called Beautiful, and this is the song that we used to sing together. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. I don't know whether to go on. <laughs> I like that for those listening, Ed's using his pen as a microphone. Quite fun to watch. Need a mic. Watch. I'm used to it. <laughs> I'm going to change song. I'll give you a bit of Maria from West Side Story because I didn't get to play him for the second time when COVID hit. The most beautiful sound I ever heard. Maria, 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 Maria. That's all you're getting. You guys have been awesome and you're incredible singers. You haven't disappointed in any way. I'm so glad to have had you on this episode. I really love that you have such high personal ethics. I love that this kind of accidental way you've sort of stumbled into your business, but with such incredible effectiveness. And I love that it's being recognized and rewarded. And top of that, I love that you still sing. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank it's you. been fun. Loved it. So lovely. Really nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, thanks for having us.